We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel, a podcast about all things rock art. Send us your suggestions. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja, California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. Okay, out there in archaeology podcast land, this is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. Pleasure to be back on board. I hope you're enjoying this journey. This is the 16th episode of the Rock Art Podcast, and we're graced and blessed to have a wonderful gentleman. He's a a personal friend. He's a member of the California Rock Art Foundation. He is a gifted photographer and also an artist of sorts, I would say, using his photography. And his name is German Cervera. German, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Pleasure to be here with you guys. Well, yeah, this is very exciting to have you. Can I share your humble occupation with the listeners? Of course. So German is different than some of our other interviewees. Sometimes I call them guest scholars. He's a man that's a truck driver that became passionate about his uh, efforts in photography and rock art, for that matter, and has plunged uh, doing a deep dive into the mysteries of the indigenous cosmology and religion. And I think we're going to hear his passion in this story. So German, I'll let you go. The opening question, of course, is how the heck did you ever get involved with any of this vis-a-vis photography, rock art, anthropology, archaeology, Native Americans, all the above. Let's hear a bit about your uh, background. Yeah, my background is, I would say it's unusual. I have no professional background in regards of archaeology. Like most people that would be into rock art have some kind of background or professional education. 
I'm the complete opposite. I've been doing photography for about 15 years. I've always considered my, my photography work different. Been obsessed with astrophotography since I started photography. What got you into photography? Let's let's kind of open up on that particular plane as well. I think that's that's unusual for people to be as passionate and as adept as you are in the field of photography. How did you get into it and why? I've thought about that before and I've realized since I can remember as a kid, I've always been into photography in a weird way. Now that I think back to it growing up, you know, I would go to field trips with school and stuff. I remember as a kid, my mom would always collect photos. So I think that's where I get the love for photography is from mm -hmm. her Yes, because she has albums on albums of just childhood pictures you know like she loved taking pictures every time we went on a field trip she would always buy us you know disposable cameras ah those you know 24 picture little disposable cameras and she would always tell us take pictures of your friends and you guys and anything that you like so you can have memories she always pushed make sure you have memories so when you grow up you can look back to these and remember your childhood memories. So obviously I would come back, she would go develop the, the instant camera and I would come back with like pictures of trees, of animals, nothing of me and my friends and she would get so upset. <laughs> she would say, why do you take pictures of this? You know, take pictures of you and your friends and I'd be like, no, this is what I like to take pictures of. Now that I look back to it, that's kind of where I started with that, but I had no idea it would grow into a, a passion slash hobby slash job where, you know, I do make money from it. It's yes. not my full-time job, but senior year was when I needed one more elective to graduate in high school. And it was some random stuff. One of them was PE and I for sure did not want to do PE again. So one of the other electives was photography. So I was like, sure, I'll take that. And then that's when I truly discovered my love for it. You know, 2002, 2003 is where digital cameras were breaking through. Mm -hmm. Film was starting to stay behind. They basically taught us rule of thirds, lighting, composition, shutter speed, just basic photography stuff and how to frame a photo. And my graduation gift was a DSLR camera. <laughs> well, that certainly shows the direction you were headed. So how did that love of photography eventually get you into this related area, taking pictures of rock art? Well, when I started doing photography, like with an actual camera, I've always been into colorful stuff, sunsets. As a kid, I always used to draw characters, paint. So I had somewhat of an artistic interest and I would always look at things on an artistic level, like something colorful. BMX bikes that I had, I would always paint them. Like I was always doing something in regards of colors and art. Then I started photography. Most people, when they start photography, they start taking pictures of people and their family and kids. I start, I wanted nothing to do with that. I wanted to create art in a digital way. So your particular take on photography was very different. It wasn't people oriented. It was art oriented. You saw photography as a means of creating a world of imagination and creativity in art. Am I correct? Yeah, I was basically trying to express myself. I've always been artistic in one way or another, and I figured out that with the camera, I could basically paint my own world. I could create my own world. One of my favorite things to do to this day is taking pictures, you know, around my hometown, places that people drive through every day and getting an angle and then completely editing a photo where 
once you see it, you're like, hey, I know where that's at. But then you see my vision, my interpretation of it. It's a weird feeling Mm -hmm. knowing you can create your own world in a photo, in a manipulate light, manipulate. I mean, the world is yours. You can create your own world. And people can see it through your eyes. And it's a pretty amazing feeling. It's almost surreal. And how recently did you transfer over and get involved with sort of the field of archaeology, rock art, and let's even even say, I call it archaeoastronomy or the celestial, the sky realm as well? Well, since a kid, I, I was always, you know, the pyramids have always fascinated me, hieroglyph. So I remember a few years back, I saw an episode of California Gold on PBS and... Yule Hauser. Yeah, I was mind blown just seeing, <laughs> I had no idea those existed. I knew of rock art, but I always assumed it was somewhere really far and like not to my reach in any way, you know, and then seeing that, I just couldn't believe it. That's kind of what sparked my interest in rock art, uh-huh. where it made it feel easier to, to access because it's in California. Hey, I, one day I can visit sites like that. You're talking about the uh, Coso rock art of Eastern yeah. California that Yule Hauser took us on a trip for. So when did you start to actually photograph rock art? It was basically 2016, I believe. I'm a late bloomer. Yeah, a few years ago, not maybe four years ago. Yeah, pretty much. And I did a tour at the museum in Ridgecrest, which uh-huh. was to Little Petroglyph Canyon. That was my first time seeing any rock art in person. And how did that make you feel? What did that speak to you as? What kind of message did that produce for you in your heart and soul and, and mind? It's the connection. It's the unknown. They were trying to tell a story, storytelling. Will we ever know what they were trying to say? No. Uh, We can assume, we can guess. I feel like there's enough understanding of where people can relate and guess what certain things mean or what they were trying to say. Mm -hmm. But in reality, it's like we will never know. One thing I understand is that they were trying to tell a story and they wanted it to be told through time. So was that your first rock art photography when you took the trip down Little Petroglyph Canyon in the Coso Range? Yes, that was my first trip. I was just like a kid in Disneyland. Uh-huh. It was a really short trip, I remember, and uh-huh. it just kind of poked me and like I couldn't get enough of it. Where'd you go from there? A few months after that, I discovered California rock art through a friend has gone on tours and I've learned so much from him. Mm-hmm. His name's Jeffrey. Okay. He kind of showed me the ropes. Hey, join this group. They do trips and kind of explained to me how the group worked. I just joined the group. Didn't All I knew was, hey, they do rock art trips. And then I got <laughs> more involved. You know, I got involved with the group itself and from just the the stuff they post and the emails and the website. And I saw, okay, I I see what they do. They're not only giving people the chance to see stuff like that, but preserving it. I mean, everything I've I've learned about rock artists has been through the California Rock Art Foundation because it opened up a whole different world for me. Where did you go next in terms of your connection to rock art? What other places have you visited since Little Petroglyph Canyon? I did the following trip I did with them was Little Lake. Okay. Right on the coastal range. Mm-hmm. That place blew my mind. <laughs> Why did it blow your mind, German? It's just, how can I put this? It's trapped in time. It's timeless. It's 
so much rock art there. So everything is just frozen in time where most rock art sites I visit, you can feel the energy. I can feel the energy and it's just, the feeling is surreal. It's to see something so old, just it makes you standing there in front of it makes you feel like you travel back to time when it was originally done. And, you know, you start to appreciate everything about it and somebody there thousands of years ago stood there and carved you know those petroglyphs or painted the pictographs and little lake is just amazing there's so much going on pictographs and petroglyphs where'd you go next i did another tour in little petroglyph Uh canyon there i did the other place in exeter rocky hill rocky hill that that place was Yeah, that place was a strange place. So much energy there. Yes, yes. And then uh, I guess you went on a cultural tour, didn't you? Yeah, I did recently do the Baja California trip to the painted murals in Baja California. Wow. How was that? That was just amazing. So it sounds like you're having quite the grand adventure. Yeah. In the next uh, minute, minute and a half, baby, we can at least open up the discussion about some of your innovative ways of capturing the cosmos. Sounds good. Yeah, talk about that a little bit. So I've been photographing the Milky Way. Mm-hmm. That's my biggest interest when it comes to astrophotography. You know, there's a what we call a Milky Way season. Mm-hmm. We could only see the core of the Milky Way early April to like mid-September is when we can see the core. And that's when photographers like to photograph it. Okay. Once that season is over, we don't see the core at night. It rises during the day, so it's we can't see it. I've been shooting the Milky Way, photographing it for years. There's different techniques of doing it, different different ways. Mm-hmm. I hold, hold that thought. We're almost out of time, and I think in the next segment we'll get into the astral photography. See you on the flip-flop. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code rockart everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back, uh, podcast listeners. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast, hosted by 
Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the uh, president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And we are graced and pleased to have a remarkable rock art photographer and uh, artist, German Cervera, to um, share with us his passion and his background vis-a-vis photographing rock art and creating artistic renditions and also experiencing rock art as uh, what's been called a rock art explorer. So why don't you tell them a little bit about your experience uh, going down to Baja? That must have been a grand adventure. Where exactly did you go in Baja? We went to Sierra de San Francisco. Okay, that's Sierra de San Francisco, yes. Once we went down to Canyon, we basically spent a few days on mules, camping out in the wilderness. On mules? Why were you on the mules? It's how you get to them. They're so remote. We left our vehicle up on top in a small little ranch. Okay. Met with the vaqueros, which are English for cowboys. They're basically the tour guides and packed all our belongings on burros. We rode mules and basically followed the burros down the canyon and very steep, narrow trails all the way down to the bottom where the the river flows. And we set up camp there and the rest is history. The whole place is magical. Um, massive cave paintings. They're all basically in the same style. Human figures, animal figures, black and red pictographs. Some are one on top of the other, like almost seems like it's different generations on top of each other and very similar story that they're depicting almost like an anthropomorphic figure painted black and red. Mm-hmm. Pretty amazing. They're giant figures. How big are they? Well, some were, you know, appeared to be 10 feet and larger. Those are enormous. Yeah. There's different stories on how they reach because some are in very high places you know, cave overhangs, Uh just seeing the pictographs and just imagining how they, you know, built human scaffolds and palm tree scaffolds to get all the way up there and paint them and pretty amazing. So these paintings are found in what context? What's the canvas, the rock canvas that they paint them on? Not exactly sure what kind of rock it was, but... Are they in caves? Yeah, not like what we would think of a cave, an actual cave. It's more like overhang, so part of a big slab that overhangs and creates like a cave. So kind of like a rock shelter, huh? Yeah, basically uh, exactly what it is, a shelter that, you know, some parts go in deep, 10, 15 feet, but they painted them on the shell, the slab that goes up and creates the shelter and they're just vertical and they go in, in all sorts of directions. Cueva Pintada was amazing so many pictographs there dr allen you probably have an idea of the number of paintings they believe are in there but it's amazing yeah it sounds like it's just enormous so how long were you there down in baja basically four days four days okay yeah four days and four nights every day was an adventure got up early in the morning and set up either hiking or on the mules and go visit different sites The whole experience was amazing. So it's down in an area, I guess, that doesn't have much in the way of access. You said it's rather remote and you have to get on a mule. You ride the mules and the burros, what do they do? They carry the luggage? Yeah, the burros, vaqueros put like an A-frame on them and strap it down and basically load up on each side of the burro, evenly load up the weight. So all of our belongings go on there and they're carrying, you know, 50 to 100 pounds per burro. Are there people that live uh, in that area or no? 
down in the what they call the ranch uh-huh. where we stayed in camp. Yeah. Two ladies and a, and a younger guy, aunt, mom and son or nephew. Uh-huh. They live off of uh, goat cheese. So it's pretty amazing watching them work, how he gets up, you know, four in the morning, lets out like over 200 goats lets them roam around in the in the in the Sierra uh-huh. brings them all back in to milk them mm-hmm. it's an everyday thing for him so um, that's what they live off of and they're the ones who take care of that property in the bottom and that's where that's where we camp where we stayed there every night left in the morning so it sounds like it's very very thinly populated there's not many people in that part of Baja California is there no, it's very remote. There's a few ranches uh-huh. driving up into the ranch where we park. Yes. But each little ranch has a population of maybe 10, 15 people. It's all families. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very thinly populated. So the vaqueros, do they live in that area? Yeah. Most of them live in the ranch, in one of those ranches there. When they're not doing tours for the rock art, they live off goat cheese as well and they live remotely no cell phone signal no power they most of them have solar kind of amazing to see how they in a way updated you know the the ranch down at the bottom where we stayed it's three of them that live down there and they have solar power which they can run a, a satellite internet to there and they can still communicate with family outside of the ranch which is pretty amazing how they're kind of caught up in technology Yeah. So after you returned from your trip to Baja, I guess you also worked on a contracted project. I've done several of them. One we did in the Mojave Preserve. Uh Uh-huh. And what was that at Mary's Cave in the Mojave Preserve? Yeah, Mary's Cave, that was one of the projects I worked on. Super magical place. That's more of a cave shelter. Mm -hmm. It's a shelter, but it, it sinks in about five, six feet in where it creates more of a cave feeling to it pictographs all over the ceiling, different anthropomorphs and figurines. And it's just stuff everywhere. Cupules on the bottom, mortars. And what are cupules? The small indentations. I believe it's where the females would indent on the different rock surfaces. I see. Yes. Huh. We shot that site. There's other rock art sections in there. We visited them as well. A lot of pictographs and petroglyphs. And they're just the whole area. It's pretty amazing. So in our previous segment, you began to discuss or talk about how you did some of this astral photography. What is astral photography? It involves different things. I like to shoot the Milky Way. There's other people that shoot galaxies and stuff with different equipment, but it's basically shooting the stars, night photography. What I like to do is when I shoot the Milky Way core, you know, there's so much planning to photograph the Milky Way. You have to shoot when it's a new moon or no moon in the sky. So it takes so much planning. So I track the moon. You can't shoot the Milky Way when the moon is out. It has to all fall into place. How many days of the month are even available to shoot the Milky Way when the moon is not out? You can shoot it when the moon is out. You just have to shoot it before the moon rises. Before the moon rises, I see. Okay. Yes. It's just basically during Milky Way season is tracking the moon, the moon phases. When there is a moon, you can still shoot the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. You have basically a good week out of the month. You can shoot the Milky Way when perfect with no interruption of the moon. Uh Uh-huh. 
Other than that, you just have to plan it. I use like different apps on my phone to track the moon. A lot of times when I'm driving around out in the desert for work, I see a composition of, of a foreground that I like. Then I start with different apps, start planning where the Milky Way would rise in that area. Once I have a, a composition set up, I usually will pin it on my phone then go back to it when I'm actually shooting the Milky Way. So it's so much planning. Then I started thinking, hey, what if I shoot Milky Way with rock art? So then as I started getting into that, I've seen some photographers do it, and it's amazing. Started getting into that, then I realized stuff lines up. A lot of the rock art lines up facing the Milky Way, so archaeoastronomy, then I discovered that and I realized like, hey, they were in tune with the sky. They knew exactly the constellations, when everything was in what place during what time of the year. Mm -hmm. It's pretty amazing with the knowledge they had. And I've discovered that through photographing the Milky Way and trying to find a composition with rock art that, hey, man, they were purposely doing petroglyphs in one area or the petroglyphs they would carve had some meaning to archaeoastronomy. Like they were so in tune with the night sky and it's it's amazing what, what they were doing. So you filmed Mary's Cave, which was a contracted piece for us to do a study and help nominate it to the National Register. Now that particular cave has been studied for decades and because it's found to have archaeoastronomical significance vis-a-vis it's an alignment and can be seen when you're in the cave i guess you can look at the summer solstice sunrise which is quite significant but what you did was you somehow had to lighten up the cave somehow and then you had to frame the milky way coming over the back of the cave over the um sort of edge of that, that rockscape that was amazing. That picture was incorporated into our National Register nomination and people's eyes pop out, their jaw drops when they see that image. How did you capture that? That particular image took so much planning and <laughs> just uh, getting it right because we had a roughly like a 15 minute window. It was early Milky Way season. So uh -huh. there was a moon rising that weekend. We uh -huh. weren't planning to shoot the Milky Way. We were there on assignment shooting Mary's Cave and at night. I was with Ryan. He's another, he's an archaeologist that, that works for California Rock Art Foundation. It's kind of my partner in crime where every time I go on assignment with California Rock Art, it's with him. We do everything together. So we, we thought about, we were having dinner and we said, hey, let's try to shoot the Milky Way. Maybe it lines up because on the direction. <laughs> you didn't even know if it was going to line up. No, we, you know. <laughs> I told Ryan, hey, it's probably going to work. Um, if not, it's going to be super close. <laughs> Let's cut it off there and we'll pick it up on the next segment. That's a great way to sort of end this one. And I'll see all my podcast listeners on the next and final segment. Thank you. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. 
Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. So welcome back, podcast listeners. This is the Rock Guard Podcast with your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. And we have an extra special guest with us today, German Savetta, who's a remarkable rock art photographer and an artist and uh, he has some tremendous stories to share so in this uh, last segment of our 16th episode of the rock art podcast tell us a bit more about this bit of serendipity and good luck with the mary's cave rock art astral photography shoot german like i was saying earlier we had this crazy idea during dinner hey, let's go try to shoot, see if the Milky Way core lines up somewhere near Mary's Cave. And I assumed it did because of the direction the cave opening was. So sure enough, after dinner, we drove up to the site, hiked about, what is it, half a mile or something into the cave in pitch dark. That's the best part about doing astrophotography is you're out in the middle of nowhere, two, three in the morning, just a headlamp and camera gear. It's the connection. You're just one with nature. And not going to lie, it was kind of sketchy hiking through the terrain at night. Was that the night that I was there with you or no? The one, the one where your camera fell down the... Uh... Yes, that's the same <laughs> night. That was, that was, that whole night was, was an experience. Oh my word. Tell him about that. So uh, I use several apps on my phone to help me track the Milky Way. For anybody listening that is into astrophotography or wants to get into astrophotography, there's a great app called PhotoPills. It's like $10 to purchase, but you can track the moon, all the faces. Uh, it tells you when it rises, when it sets. It gives a night augmented reality. Basically, you open that section of the app and you point your phone up in the sky and you can rotate what would be that version of the night sky and you, you just rotate it with your finger and it basically rotates the Milky Way and it's switching the time. So then once you find the Milky Way core, for example, that's what I use it for. Once I find the core completely vertical, it, it'll show me a time on the top left corner and it, it shows me what time the core is going to be perfectly vertical. In other words, it tells you when the Milky Way is going to show up so that you're not waiting there forever for it to appear in the sky. You know exactly when to shoot it according to the composition you're trying your foreground at. Does it normally show up the same time of the night every night or no? No, no it, it changes throughout the summer, you know, early summer. Uh-huh. It's two, three in the morning by the time the Milky Way core is vertical. Ah, ah. Sometimes three thirty ish. Midsummer, late summer it's like twelve o'clock, then eleven o'clock. Early September it's roughly nine thirty PM when the Milky Way core is vertical. So after mid-September, it's it's possible, but it's almost impossible to shoot it because it's too bright outside still. I see. So you have to get it when the time is right and when the moon is appropriate. And you've also got to find the actual alignment or angle 
for a piece of rock art or a landform or something else to be associated with and in alignment so you can take a proper photograph. Yeah, and there's so much to it behind the scenes that if you're there watching another photographer shoot astrophotography and then see the finished results, it's amazing because nobody will understand all the work that's involved until they see it firsthand because they see the images and they're like, wow, this is amazing. But, you know, you have to get all these things lined up perfect to get a single exposure, everything in one shot. So first of all, it's all the planning. Then how do you get a picture of the sky that looks so distinctive and so clear? What, what is it that you have to do? It's called like basically long exposures, leaving your shutter open for a set time. You can't go for too long because the stars will start trailing. Yeah. There's options like I have a star tracker where I mount the star tracker on top of the tripod, the camera on top of that, and then you track the night sky. So your camera is rotating with the earth. So it allows you to do three, four minute exposures. No. Yes. No, I, so, I can't. I can't believe you mean you have a machine that's attached yes. to the camera. So it tracks the sky so it can give a long exposure. And so it doesn't show the trailings of the stars. Yes, that's the fancy <laughs> way to do it. Because, oh, um, my after, word. After like 25 seconds, you'll see star trails. The, sure. The stars. So with, with the star tracker. It's a pain in the butt to align it, but once you get it right, you leave your shutter open for, you can do for three to four minutes. And that's how you're able to produce the Milky Way core where it looks like, it looks fake. It looks all colorful. and It looks so clear and so wondrous and so bright and have so much depth to it. It's a cosmological beauty. It's a, it's a, you know, a living mystery. It's unbelievable. Like in Mary's Cave, what I do a lot is light paint. It's called light painting. Uh, and what does that mean? You use lights, LED flashlights, headlamps, depending on what kind of light source. Literally paint your surface or your whatever you're, you're trying to use as a foreground. You paint it with the flashlight. So you're painting light onto a surface. And when you have the shutter open, creating a long ex exposure, you're... Mm -hmm. Once the shutter closes, the surface that you painted is exposed as if it was, you know, daylight. Mary's Cave, for example, that night we went out. Yeah, yeah. I set a few LED lights inside the cave and I had a cell phone light, which I love using because it's the softest. Yes. It gives you enough light to light up the the background of a subject and it doesn't blow up because there's so much to it if you have too much light while you're doing a long exposure your mm -hmm. highlights are blown out so you then you ruin the shot if you go too long of an exposure dip, you don't set up your camera settings properly you get an, a blown out highlight so it's so much trial and error so much playing around it takes so much to get the perfect shot after you take the picture and you have to post-process it and do certain things to enhance what you've taken as a picture or clarify it or get greater resolution. How much post-capturing the picture does it take? Is it a short process? No, astrophotography stuff can take a while because it's just adjusting all the, the highlights, shadows. I try to only manipulate not manipulate the photo too much, but just adjust the exposure, the I see. saturation, try to make it look as real as possible, but detailed. 
So you're trying to create something that is, in fact, realistic and sort of portrays kind of the, the mystery and the awe and just the beauty of the landscape and the night sky with the uh, prehistoric Native American activities. And it kind of marries the religious nature and sacred nature of the place, doesn't it? Yeah, I've always seen rock art like it, it was an artist's interpretation of whatever story they were trying to tell. So when I document rock art, when I photograph it, I like to give it my artistic view of it. I love doing long exposures. During the day, I have a natural density filter kit that I use on my camera. Mm -hmm. During the day, I can do long exposures. You get clouds to streak, uh, water to look silky, smooth, because you basically put a natural density filter, which locks all the light coming in, and it allows your camera to do a long exposure and not be overexposed. Did you teach yourself all this? Did you take other classes to learn some of these things? No, it's all self-taught. All self-taught. I've always been a hands-on guy and um, YouTube. You got to love YouTube. Yeah. A lot of it trial and error, you know, just, okay, this didn't work out. Then try this and just always trying to grow, always trying to be a better artist, try something different. I do incorporate, when I photograph rocker, I do incorporate my techniques. I like doing, you know, setting up my camera on a tripod, Mm -hmm. shooting the rock art with the natural density filter and doing a long exposure, streaking the clouds above the rock art. Mm-hmm. When I edit the rock art, I bring out all the the petroglyphs, the details on them. You make them brighter. You make them more distinct. You increase the resolution, correct? Yeah. Basically what de-stretch does to a photo, but I do it manually, not in a, not invert the colors the way it does. When I edit rock art, sometimes it looks unreal. When you see it with the naked eye, it doesn't look that way because of, I've incorporated my editing techniques and my shooting styles with rock art where I can make everything pop out. I can bring it back. I feel like I can bring it back to life. I can. Yeah. You can make a dance and sing, right? Yeah. I I use strobe lights when I shoot rock art or flash during the day. I adjust my settings to where I can shoot with the flash or a strobe light and light up the rock panel where it brings out so many petroglyphs that aren't visible to the naked eye during the day. You can see depending on the time of the day, you can, you can see different, petroglyphs that aren't visible at a later time of the day with the flash you can actually bring all that stuff out yes because you're manipulating light because sometimes the glancing light or the flash as you say allows one to see images that are there that are very very ancient they're almost completely uh, occluded or covered up by the uh, desert varnish but yeah. they are still there, but they're just remnant images vis-a-vis the concavities or the sort of, they're sculptural, but they're very slightly sculptural. Yeah. And you with the proper lighting, just like you've seen during the day, early morning, you can see some petroglyphs during the yes. day. You can see yes. other ones, depending on the light, the way the light changes. Right. Well, with the, with the flash and the strobe, you can actually recreate that at any time of the day. If you light it up properly, where you can bring up all these petroglyphs that are not visible with the naked eye during the bright daylight or or vice versa, all those will pop up. Uh, Like I said, I I use different techniques when it comes to shooting. What's your favorite image that you've ever taken? You know, you produce such gorgeous jaw-dropping photographs. Do you have any sort of favorite glyph, either a painting or a petroglyph that you've done? Is there one that sort of tugged at you and just you really were riveted to those particular images? 
it's the panel in little petroglyph where it's got the anthropomorphic figures it's way in the top it's the most popular one yeah it's the one that sort of acts as a almost a trademark for the american rock art research association and i think also serves in part as sort of a hallmark for the matarango museum doesn't it Yes, that one. There's something magical about that. There's sort of decorated animal human figures that have quail plume headdresses and everything else you can imagine. It's probably the most photographed panel in the entire canyon. It makes you think, like, what were they seeing or what were they thinking? What were they witnessing where they were depicting, you know, these humans and the creativity behind it? Even if it was just their imagination of just how creative they were when when you see a uh, rock art and petroglyphs like that it, it's amazing yeah we only have about a minute left is there any sort of concluding reflections you should give the uh, listeners about rock art photography or about your experiences or adventure with rock art yeah i just like to not everybody who's into rock has a professional background i'm a perfect example i'm just a normal person with the camera that you know photographer that got into rock art and my passion for it has grown through the years and it's for anybody and everybody if you're if you're into it don't be afraid to photograph it and be artistic with it because that's that's what I like to do in my rendition of, of rock art it's my visions you know my my artistic interpretations of it excellent Excellent. Thank you so much, German. You're quite a blessing and it's a wonder to talk to you and I can just feel and sense your passion. Well, thank you, uh, podcast listeners. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. 
Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.